Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. Welcome back to America's Heroes Group, this time with our roundtable community outreach with the NADCP, the National Association for Dr- of Drug Court Professionals. October is Breast Cancer, Mental Health, National Disability, and Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Today is Saturday, October 22nd, 2022. Our host is Cliff Kelly. You heard at the break. I'm Sean Claiborne, the co-host, Army National Guard veteran. Our executive producer is Glenda Smith, and our digital media producer is Ivan Ortega of Scouts Honor Productions. And we have our panelists with us on the Zoom. We're going to be talking about some things. We're going to be talking about the justice for vets and how it works and the value in vets, mentoring vets, and how other key issues and how mentorship and also justice for veterans is so important. Now, Mark uh, Penis, I'm going to mess up your last name, Penis Suix. Panish Chavez. U.S. Air Force veteran yeah, and Panish project Chavez. director with Justice for Vets. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? Can you hear me okay? Hear you great. Loud and clear. Great. So let me know, what is the Justice for Vets about? First of all, tell us about the program, how it got started. Tell us what is this program doing for veterans today? Well, Justice for, for Vets... It's like we froze up a little bit, so we got to get him back on the line. We got to get him back in about ten seconds. Let me see. Is Mark, you come, uh, Mark, you there? Can you hear us? Just uh, give us a a call back. So Mark is a U.S. Air Force veteran. He's also had a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from Michigan Technical University. He has a master's in clinical social work from Michigan State University and also was involved in the Kennewal Bay Indian Community Healing to Wellness Court, which is your court, from 2011 to 2018. And he specialized in Tribal Law and Policy Institute since 2014. And he currently serves as a product director for the Justice for Vets, a division of the National Association of Drug Courts Professionals. So this is something we wanted to talk about because of the fact that um, a lot of veterans find themselves in situations where, unfortunately, with, you know, uh, substance abuse or or drug addiction, they find themselves in the court system. And what we found, the reason we're having this conversation is what we found, the data has shown over many years, is that you can spend less money and get better results by providing treatment versus providing punishment, just focusing on punishment, finding, figuring out a way to help people learn from their mistakes and do better so they can be better citizens. Mark, you with us again? Yeah, I'm back. I'm trying to get the Zoom connected back up, but I've got the audio back up. So, so while I'm trying to get my Zoom back up, I'll uh, I'll tell you what I was starting to say, which is basically the uh, Justice Servets is a division of NADCP, which is the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, and and what we do is we travel around and offer training opportunities to veterans treatment courts. And, and try to get them to follow the, the best practice and the evidence-based um, practices that have been established and so that they can do the absolute best they can do for their vets. 
So, the, so when you're going through drug treatment court, people have to have the first of all, we need to understand that it's not an easy process. From what I understand, it's very, it's a lot. It's going to try you. A lot of people don't make it through. A lot of people rather go to jail sometimes and go through this program because they have a. Is it a choice that they can go either through the program, or is it more of an opportunity where they're offered the the, the ability to go through the program? It's always an opportunity. It's always a choice. Uh, they don't ever force somebody to go in there. It's not, uh, it's not usually court-ordered. Um, it's a volunteer program. Um, oftentimes, they will take the advantage because there's, there's carrots to doing it. You know? um, and one of the big carrots is a lot of times uh, their record can be cleaned up or expunged or their, their sentencing can be less. You know? And so that's a big part of that. Um, the overall result is, of course, giving them back their lives. You know, and letting them be uh, reintegrated and back into society, and and again, letting them have that uh, um, that honor and integrity that they had while they were serving too. So you work with the Keweenaw Bay uh, Indian Community um, Healing to Wellness Court, which is drug court. How has that experience? How do you can you relate that experience to what you've seen with veterans? Some of the struggles that Native Americans have, um, and a lot of communities are dis- disenfranchised or a low to moderate income or just don't have the opportunities out there. How have you seen uh, success in that arena versus how do you relate that to the Veterans Court? Well, they're both the same model. The big difference is, is that um, the difference in the model is that, uh, is that one is, of course, working with Native American populations and the other one is working with veteran populations. And so um, one of the things that the Healing and Wellness Court uh, figured out quite a long time ago, and that would be the is that, they, that it takes a community to help um, somebody get through that kind of a process. And that's what we're doing with veterans. That's why the difference between a veterans treatment court and, and an adult drug court, say, is that we have mentors. And the mentors are kind of that secret component that helps the, the, the veterans get through the court by offering them in support and encouraging them and empowering them and all that. And, and 99% of the time, the veterans, uh, the mentors are all voluntary. So how do you pick or find mentors? Well, the courts find them. We don't find them. What we do is we train them at Justice for Vets. We help train the mentors. And so a lot of times the courts reach out to their veteran populations. Um, sometimes they go through the VA. Sometimes they go through organizations like the Lions Club or um, those kind of places, you know, or even uh, veterans organizations. Uh, Team Red, White, and Blue is one where they can sometimes get mentors. Or the VFW or the American Legion. All those are places that they can find people that want to volunteer and, and help out fellow veterans. And so that's how they usually find them. And what we do at Justice for Vets is we help train them so that uh, mentors have the understanding of boundaries and understand what uh, what role they're going to play and not to get out of their lane, so to speak. You know, a lot of times when uh, the veterans hear that they're going to be advocating for veterans, we want to make sure they understand what that advocation means. You know, and that's encouraging them and supporting them and that kind of stuff. That's what we want to make sure we see. And who are the, these veterans or the, or the mentors? I'm sorry. Are they normally people that maybe have been on that path themselves, or are they people that are just are just charitable and want to help out? They're both. Um, we've seen we've seen mentors that come through have actually graduated from veterans treatment courts and then and then turn around after they have a term of uh, of uh, recovery to turn around and start volunteering. We see um, we also see mentors that have never had a substance use issue. Uh, who volunteer and everything, because one of the things they found when they looked at the, the, the component there for Veterans Treatment Court is that it's about the culture. You know, and I, you said you were an Army uh, vet, right, sir? Mm-hmm. Right. 
Right. Well, I was Air Force. All right. So um, immediately when we say that, I can see in your your face right now. You can think of all the jokes you can make about Air Force. Right? How easy we had it. How light it was. Right? If I'd done it again, I would have joined the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and and we all make fun of Marines, right? You know, right. Um, and because that's part of military culture. The same way when we talk about MREs and and boot camp and all those things that we can bring up that people that haven't served don't necessarily. They may have heard of them, but they might not necessarily necessarily understand them you know even something that's saying embrace the suck you know or or an mos and so that's the importance of those mentors is that they they help people bridge that gap of culture and help non-veterans understand what they're doing when they're working with veterans and the other thing is it gives that common bond for the veteran that's the participant in the program to know that there's somebody there you know that there's somebody there that that isn't associated with the court you know, because they're not a member of the court. The, the mentors are volunteer, and they're there really just to encourage and empower. And, and I think that's where we see the strength come up from it. So do you see this expanding? Because I want to touch on this particular point. I mentioned this earlier, but I think the, the key thing why I'm excited about this idea is because of, of uh, treatment courts. It's because the success rate is so much higher than the regular civilian population or the regular criminal justice system. When you have the recidivism rates that are so much lower, but it's a fraction of the cost of the regular criminal justice system. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the studies show over and over and over again that the locking people up does not help them with their mental health issues, and it doesn't help them with their substance use. Looks like we froze up a little bit again. So you got to call us back a little bit, uh, Mark. So we lost it, Mark, a little bit uh, for a little, for a second or so. So, one of the things that so, um, there you are, there you're back, you're back with us. You you froze up a little bit. So to repeat what you just said because you froze up a little bit. Okay, what I said was is that of course they work because when we look at studies, we can see that we can see that recidivism um, is less, and that if throwing somebody in prison or jail worked then we could just throw them in prison and they'd be cured, but that hasn't worked. We've seen that. It doesn't work. And so they keep having this revolving door. And so when we look at this, we can see that it absolutely does work. And and that's why the that's why treatment courts are popular. That's why they're they're flourishing. And and the other thing is is with veterans treatment courts, we're definitely seeing a difference with the mentors so much so that the adult treatment courts now are starting to do peer support mentors. Because they see that that culture is important and that that bond and that encouragement and empowerment is really a big part of this. So do you see this expanding? And what, what is the growth rate of these treatment courts? And how can, we, how can we do more to expand it? Or in all honesty, I don't see why we don't do this all the time. This should be the model from what I can see. Well, that's absolutely right. It should be the model, and they are growing, and they are expanding. If you look at the number of treatment courts, even from five years ago today, you'll see that they're expanding. A big part of it is just educating. You know, I think that's a, a huge part of why treatment courts haven't caught on in some places is because a lot of people get the wrong idea of what they are. They think that a treatment court is light on crime or it's going to be some easy process or somebody is being able to manipulate a system, and they don't realize the intensity that happens, not only with the treatment that's involved, because remember, we're talking about a treatment court, you know, but also about the supervision. You know, one of the things I've always seen is you'll see people say things like, well, if somebody has a domestic violence, then they shouldn't be in treatment court. And, and the example I always use with that is this. Okay, if somebody has domestic violence and they go to jail, they might go to jail for six months, maybe. 
And that's if the victim doesn't press charges at all and gets them right back out anyways, because majority of the time that's exactly what happens. And so now we have somebody that's, that does their six months in jail, gets out, still has their mental health issues, still has their substance use issues, and now they're unsupervised. Okay, to me, that doesn't make any community safer. Or we can put them into a highly intensive program that lasts 18 months. Okay, usually a minimum of 18 months, and that's if they do it perfectly. Oftentimes, it's much longer than 18 months. And during that 18 months, they're reporting to court once a week. They're reporting to our probation officer once a week. Every time they step out of line, even a little bit, they're going to get sanctioned. And when they do something right, they're going to get incentivized. Plus, we're going to make sure that they're going to treatment weekly. We're making sure that they're going to groups. To me, that sounds like something that's going to make a community a heck of a lot safer than some throwing somebody in jail for maybe six months and nothing changing. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's what we look at. So what I'm hearing is accountability is what is a key focus on the program. Making sure everybody's accountable for what their actions. You give them, like you said, a carrot for you know to give them incentive to try to move forward. And then really, and this is we've talked about this in other in other segments in the past, but a person gets to a certain point where they're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. They're sick and tired of being at rock bottom. And they are, they're looking mm-hmm. for a way to get off of rock bottom, but they just don't have the tools or mechanisms around them or the support system around them to do it. And this kind of gives them And that's, that's a great point you brought up, too. That's a great point, because that was the belief for a long time. The belief for a long time was is that somebody has to hit absolutely rock bottom before anything can change. Now, if you think about it, what's the absolute rock bottom? Like low job, oh yeah, well yeah, death is death. No death, death is the absolute rock bottom. You're under six feet. Okay, so how do that's what I mean? So how do we help somebody recover from that point? I mean, so we're basically telling somebody you may have to die before we can do anything. And so, so what they've actually found out now is instead of trying to push that rock bottom, that what we found out is it's not a it's not a rock bottom that makes the difference. It's Mm -hmm. absence of hope. When somebody gets hope that there might be something different and there's hope that something can happen, that's when we start seeing real change. And that's one of the things that treatment courts are are learning now and teaching is that recovery capital is much more important than than rock bottoms. And the same thing with with a veteran's treatment court. I mean, a lot of times the reason why they're where they're at is they're hopeless. It's not because they need to hit more rock bottoms. And that's one of those things when we look at the mentors. The mentors can come in and be that source of, hey, look, I haven't been where you're at, but I'm telling you there's hope. And if anything, I'm here to, to lend that hand to let you grab out to. And I think that's what makes that huge difference between the veterans treatment courts and other ones. But it's absolutely about finding hope now. You know, not so much let's hit rock bottom or, you know, there's another belief that they had to want it. That was the other thing. They have to want it. Wow. And and that's, again, been proven kind of false. Hmm. What they've shown is, is that somebody that is coerced or forced into treatment does just as well as somebody that goes voluntarily. There is no difference in the recovery numbers when we look at that. Really? So a person who's forced into, into a treatment has the same success rate yeah. as someone who voluntarily goes in? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So if I'm, a, if I'm your everyday, you know, Joe on the street and I decide to go to treatment, my success rate is the exact same as somebody that had some pressure put on them by a court you know, and was given the option of go to jail for eight months or go to treatment, that person will do as equally as well as me. The, the results are the exact same. Wow. And that's why they're saying, yeah, and that's why they're saying more and more about, it's more about a presence of hope than a rock bottom. And the same thing when we look at that, when we look at the justice, um, the justice involved vets, that's what it comes down to, is it really comes down to a mentoring process that helps them, you know, and gives them that. And I'm not, I'm not disregarding the rest of the court because, the whole court is what makes it work. But that one key component really does come down to those mentors. 
you so, know. So when a person goes into treatment court, they don't go to jail typically, right? They go to they are they get to go back home pretty much. Now, do they are they under house arrest? Do they have an ankle bracelet? How does that? How does that? How does the monitoring work? With it them? all depends on how the courts do it. But the way they usually do it is they structure it with a phase program, and so with each phase, there's a little bit more supervision. So when you first start out in the program, there's going to be a lot more supervision, and then depending on the behaviors of the veteran or the participant, is going to depend on whether or not supervision increases or decreases. So, so if when they first get out, they're doing everything good and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're following the rules of the program. Then no, they're not going to do increase supervision. Now, if all of a sudden I'm breaking my curfew every night, that I'm supposed to be home at 10 o'clock, so the first time I break it, well, number one, it's going to get brought up in court, which is weekly. We're not talking monthly, we're talking weekly. All right, And so I get brought up in court, and then I get sanctioned, and maybe the judge is going to say, you know what, um, because you broke curfew, you're going to go pick up garbage on the side of the road for the next two hours. All right, And we're going to put an ankle bracelet on you so we can keep track of you. You know, and then that might happen for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, and then they might say, okay, we're going to try this again. We'll take the bracelet off, and we'll see what you can do. You know, and that's how that works. And then if they do really well and they meet their curfew, then there's usually some kind of reward. Oftentimes it's praise from the judge or, or things like that, or it might be a small incentive for, for doing the right thing. Hmm. And that's exactly how the program works. So, so you know, Now, does jail happen? Hmm. Jail can happen, but we don't recommend jail. You know, um, the studies have shown that jail does not solve people. Matter of fact, a lot of times jail undoes treatment, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when we're trying to, oh, yeah, when we're trying to work with somebody to, you know, treat them and, and give them new tools, when we put them in jail, that actually can undo that, wow. you know. And so that's why the, the studies actually show that you shouldn't put somebody in jail for more than five days. Um, otherwise, after seven days, you actually start un- trying to fix. So, wh- so that's is- kind of like the last result. So why why is that? Well, I've heard of I heard of situations where for people that they're not necessarily in and um, have a substance abuse problem or maybe they're they're have an alcohol problem or a drug problem or you know, were they I heard of non addicted people going into prison and getting it's like a college for criminals that's what people would call it you know so they learn from other criminals because you're surrounded by other criminals that are doing all kinds of different things sometimes even gang activity inside the prisons where you learn how to be a better criminal so you come out. Not necessarily, and then you come out of the prison, and then you have this record now, so you can't really integrate back into society the same way as you did before. So the easiest path, like you know, water flow into the to the path of least resistance. The easiest path to getting what you want to try to meet your needs and try to get to have some kind of success is going back into the criminal element. So, but what is it with a person who has a substance abuse problem? Because you would think that the further, the more time they're away from this, the uh, using the drugs, that maybe they might have a better shot of being sober. So the, the, the misunderstanding here, and this is the problem that we see over and over again, is, is people keep forgetting that a substance use disease is just that, it's a disease. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, so it's not a choice. And so when we say, well, if we throw somebody in jail and they're away from a, from a long enough period of time, then, then that should make choice different. But, but the problem is, is the neural on the brain, and that's what really we're looking at. When we're looking at substance use disorder, we're looking at a neural pathway in the brain that actually buys logical thought. That's the basic stuff, okay? And that's why when we see people that have substance use disorders doing things that are absolutely crazy, and we and we look at them, and we either have to say, well, they're either crazy, you know, we're doing crazy behaviors, or they're just horrible people. You know, because a lot of times the stuff they're doing is harmful to other people. They're stealing from loved ones or neglecting children. 
and and all that stuff. So when we look at the fact that it's actually a, a fact that they have a difficulty making logical thought, that's what it comes down to. And and they've got brain scans that show that people have a substance use disorder. The frontal lobe of the brain just isn't firing right. And so when we when we treat them, what we're doing is just like somebody has a stroke. When somebody has a stroke and they lose the ability to speak. That's because the neural pathway that goes to the speech center has been damaged. And what we do is we send them to rehab and we send them to speech therapy and we work on creating a new neural pathway so that they can access their speech again. Well, the same thing happens when we work with somebody who has substance use disorder. Um, we're trying to create a new neural pathway so they can access logical thought again. That's what the whole point of it is. So if we just throw them in jail and we never do any physical treatment, it'd be like throwing somebody in jail that had a stroke mm. that couldn't talk. If we just stick them in jail, they're not not going to be able to talk when they get out two years later, wow. you know? And so what we really want to do is do that neural pathway and create it. And here's the thing is when we stick somebody in jail and we've been working on that neural pathway, when we put them in jail, that's a really negative place. And, and everybody in there is going to encourage them to use the bad pathway, the one that got them in here in the first place, that illogical thought pathway. And so we're actually undoing the one we've already created. And that's why jail just doesn't work. Mm. And that's why we need to continue to treat. So going you back know, to and what I'm not saying, oh, go ahead. No, no, going back to what we talked about, what you mentioned earlier. So people are human. They make mistakes. They sometimes fall off the wagon. So what are the consequences for falling off the wagon? You mentioned increased surveillance or increased supervision. Um, but mm -hmm. is it because someone, someone might be afraid that if I will, you know, given my history, given my past, I tried many times to get off of drugs, and I just blew it, blew it up completely, wrecked the whole my whole recovery process. What's the what are the consequences for failing? So the way it works when we look at treatment courts, all right, invention treatment courts, and, and adult treatment courts, is we look at everything as proximal and distal goals. Okay, um, and what we mean by that is, is if you look at me, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a chubby guy, right? And if you said, "Hey, Mark, we want you to go run a marathon," well, for me, that would be a very distal goal. That's not something I'm going to be able to do right away. And if you looked at me and said, "Mark, if you don't run this marathon, we're going to punish you," more than likely, I'm going to get punished, and that's not really fair. Okay, but if you said, "Mark, listen, we want you to walk half a mile today," well, that's proximal. I should be able to do a half a mile. Now, if I choose not to do that, then, yeah, I should probably get some kind of sanction. When we look at people with substance use disorder, that's the same thing. When they're first coming in the program, expecting them to be sober right off the get-go is an unrealistic thing, okay? And so if they while they come into the program, yes, we are going to sanction them because we want to change behavior. But those sanctions are going to be very light, and we're going to be more treatment-focused meaning that we recognize that you need more treatment so you have no new skills and new ability to make different decisions. So instead of punishing, we're going to look for more about treating. Let's treat you. Let's treat you. Now, once they get to a point where they've established they have some recovery time in or some sober time and they can establish that they can do some time without using, that's when the punishment starts more about using. So once you've established that you can be sober and you've got some new t tools, but you're still occasionally using the wrong ones, that's when the punishment will increase. So there's not a treatment court out there that's going to just throw the book at somebody the first time they come in and use. That's insanity. Hmm. You know, if these people if these people could stop using, they wouldn't need a treatment court. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I was a clinical director of an inpatient treatment facility, and, and I've seen some uh, facilities say, we got to be drug-free for, for two weeks before you can come into a, a treatment center. I mean, to me, that's insanity. If they, if they can go drug-free for two weeks, they probably don't need to be in the treatment center in the first place, or you're encouraging them to lie to you. That's wow. what you're telling them. You're yeah. saying, listen... 
lie to us. Lie to us and then come in. And, and again, that's giving the wrong message because we, we're trying to promote honesty and health, but we're telling somebody, if you want to get in here, you got to lie, you know. And so that's why treatment courts aren't designed that way, you know. You think? We're not saying we own substance use, but we are saying that we understand that you need help before you're going to get better. Do you think that some of the mistakes we've made, and particularly with treatment around drugs, because when you said that, it reminds me of the, the Nancy Reagan campaign back in the 80s with just say no they had Nancy just say no. on, went on national television and said well there's a horrible thing going to run right now it's called drugs <laughs> you know don't do it just don't do it <laughs> just say no yeah and this was that easy but not under not recognizing and understanding a lot of the consequences a lot of the the pressures and the societal issues economic issues and all the things that go around with it that force people into these types of making these types of habits and these decisions now once you and yeah. i mean one hit of heroin and you're you're hooked that's it that's all it takes a lot of these drugs these these hardcore drugs one hit is all it takes for you to be addicted for life your body will be chemically changed and altered where you will need that yep. drug otherwise you will get very very sick so yeah what absolutely is, so what caused this a lot of the bad ideas was it just negligence, or is under, or 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 maybe this bad philosophy from your perspective? I think it's bad philosophy, and I think that. So I'll give you an example. Here's here's the example I always like to give. All right, um, let's say that uh, your name is Sarah, and you have cancer, Sarah, and it's horrible. So horrible cancer you have, and and you've two kids, but you haven't been able to work. You haven't really been able to take care of kids because you're going through chemo treatments. It's just you are in really rough shape. Um, you lost your jobs. You're having problems keeping your lights on and feeding your kids. Social service comes. Social services comes in and says, "Listen, Sarah, we got to take the kids. We got to remove them because you're in a position where you just can't do this right now." All right, but I promise you, when you get better and you beat the cancer, we're going to do everything we can to help you get your kids back. So it happens. Sarah's kids get removed. Sarah goes through her treatment, gets better. Sarah goes back to the worker and goes, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, everything's good. I'm working again. All, all good. The worker says, let's go. We're going to get your kids back. We're going to work on it. Get your kids back. Everything's hunky-dory. Okay? That's a great story for Sarah because Sarah has cancer. Do we treat Sarah that way if she's a heroin addict? Hell no. No. We don't. We treat her like she's got choice, that she's doing these horrible things, and that she's just a horrible person. We don't treat her like it's a disease and that's where the problem is is that we're dealing with a disease we're not dealing with a choice that's why the just say no doesn't work so well you know it's easy to say just say no when you're you know in bel air in a mansion it's hard to just say no when you know you're in the hood and you're afraid to walk into school and you know all sorts of other aspects that come up to that you know or you've been being abused for half your life it's hard to say just say no and so i think when we can start changing our own mindset on it being a disease because everybody will say oh it's a disease it's a disease but we don't treat people like it's a disease we treat people like it's a choice and like they're doing something that's just horrible wow I think that's really profound what you what you mentioned. I think that's very true um, in our society. We have a society that likes to punish versus treat or correct problems. So we 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 get caught up in this idea of punishment and not realizing, you know, that's it's an endless cycle. We never fixed a problem by just constantly focusing on punishment, punishment, punishment. If if the person doesn't, it's not given an opportunity to do something different or to get out of their their addiction, then you ex- would expect the same result. So we have to do yeah. more to expand these courts. We have to get, like I said, this is the model. Once again, going back to the original uh, original premise at the top of the show, this is more effective, and it costs less. 
I mean, that's a no-brainer. More effective costs less. Ten times more effective, multiples are more effective. We're not talking like just 20% more or whatever. Multiples more effective and a fraction of the cost. You know, I'm going to mess up your last name one more time. Mark Penizus, Penisuis. How do you say it? Penishevitz. Penishevitz. <laughs> Thanks for your time. We appreciate you. Justice for Vets. All right. Thank you, sir. This is America's Heroes Group. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.